Welcome to episode 199 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. <laughs> hey, brother. This is the last time officially we will be in the 100s in terms of episode count. I know. I was going to wish you a happy 3.846153853 anniversary. I, I noticed this because podcasters tend to think in uh, hun- 50s and 100s, right? Yes. Like that's the normal increment. But when you're talking about a podcast, you really th- need to think in like like 12s and 52s. So happy three point whatever the number I just said anniversary. Can I brother. just say we've grown together so much. I mean, I don't want to get overly emotional or intimate with you right now, but just the way in which you've applied the mathematics in this situation warms <laughs> my heart to a degree that I really can't communicate with words. Yeah. You know, I think when we started this podcast, you had like a regular beard and now you have like the mountain man, <laughs> like the mountain man. I don't do anything with it. Beard. <laughs> That's I, when we started this podcast, I still had hair, I think. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's funny, though, because I would say that's the exact same thing my wife says is when you have a beard that it looks like you're not doing anything with. It just looks like you want to be homeless. And she's always after me to say it needs to look on purpose, on purpose beard. I mean, I think it looks like you want to be homeless, but you do that on purpose. That's the <laughs> response. That's usually what I say. You're a good brother. That's the, the exact reason <laughs> I give. And I say, listen, I'm growing this thing on purpose. When I get up every morning, I specifically say to myself, no, don't shave that. It looks amazing. Yeah. If the Reformed Brotherhood ever starts publishing books, which we actually had someone suggest that we write a book about our podcast. I was like, that's, yeah. yeah. But if we ever start publishing books, uh, you should write a book called The Purpose Driven Beard. I actually can't believe it's taken us this long to get to that joke. That was brilliant. I just want to say that was really pretty good. I th- I feel like we're, we need to move into an era of puns like that. That needs to be the 200 era. It's like we need to get punnier. I feel like our pun game is pretty strong at times. Hasn't it? Been? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe uh, our listeners are be quite on like the distilling theologies pun level. I have a friend, Robert Kunda, who's one of the, the admins in the reform pub. His pun game is like, off the hook, man. He's like a whole different level, but it's we, possible I might get there someday. It's possible that's a spiritual gift. Like the, the ability yeah. to have a turn of mind that's always right on top of the pun. That is something pretty exciting. And not just like corny puns, but like the good ones where you're like, okay, yeah. I see what you did there. Yeah. That, the ones where you can't help but laugh. Yes, exactly. That I wish I had that gift. Alas, it seems that I do not. Yeah. Yes. But we so, are nearing 200. We are. It's exciting. It's a it's lot of it's a lot of podcasting, and um, I, I just I don't know how we did it. Honestly, like it's a, <laughs> it's a long time. Uh, I look at like Reform Forum; they're on like episode seven hundred fifty-seven thousand or something like that. How dare! And they? I'm like, that's a crazy amount. I remember it was sometime in the first ten episodes. 
I made a joke about how I numbered the episodes like zero, zero, one, because I was I was confident we were going to get into the one hundreds. And I, honestly, at the time, I wasn't really confident we were going to get into the one hundreds. <laughs> like, like if you think about it, like most podcasts, they, they kind of like fizzle out after, you know, 10 or 15 episodes. Like it's hard once you get past like 15 episodes, you start to develop a habit and some rhythms. You get an idea of like how much time it's going to take. But a lot of podcasts never make it out of the like single digits or the early double digits. So it, it's been interesting. It's a lot of podcasting. It is. And because we're nearing, at least in some ways, some milestone, whether or not that's arbitrary or not, we were talking before this about how we kind of wanted to lay out a little bit of a challenge for the listeners. Yes. Yeah. So we would love it. Right. We, we've talked about this almost since episode one that we wanted this. You know, we call this show the Reformed Brotherhood and ha ha ha. Like there's a pun that like Jesse and I are brothers. But we wanted to call this the Reformed Brotherhood <laughs> because we wanted this to be a like a bigger community activity. Absolutely. Right? So obviously, like Jesse and I are behind the mics. We're doing the show. But we want this to be about like the community at large. Like the Brotherhood is not just me and Jesse. It's everybody who listens to the show, who calls in and, and asks questions, who participates in the Facebook, who sends us emails. So what we want to do, it's not going to be for episode 200 necessarily, but it's going to be a celebration of of the fact that we've been doing this for so long and what this community has grown into. We want everybody to call and leave a voicemail. And the only instructions we're going to give you is that the, the project we're going to work on that these voicemails will contribute to is a celebration of the fact that we've hit 200 episodes. So you can, you whatever you want to interpret that as, it's a Choose your own adventure kind of an assignment. Call us 603 607-607-444-2767 Bros. Bros. Right? Call us. That's the assignment. Leave us a voicemail that somehow represents a celebration of 200 episodes of the Reform Brotherhood. This had a little bit of the flavor of America's Funniest Home Videos, where they were like, record yourself falling off a trampoline or something like that. It was like, here's your assignment, America. Yeah. yeah. Please don't hurt yourself in order to do this. We would like it if you don't. <laughs> but in some ways, this is kind of a call to action of, hey, we know that you're out there. It'd be great to just hear a lot of different voices. Yeah. And there's certainly, uh, if you listen for any length of time, and let me say, there's some people, right, that have heard like all 199 episodes. And I think I about those people listening to episode one, where we don't even say our names, and we just start <laughs> talking about the church, which is great. It was it was a great episode. I'm, I think I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying like, we've changed quite a bit since then. So, so many people have journeyed with us and probably have a better sense of how we've changed than we even know ourselves. So this is a little bit about, let's hear your voice. Just call the number, just call the number, say whatever you like. And we'd like to put together lots of different voices in reflection of the time we've all spent together. Yeah. Yeah. So check it out. Uh, We would love it to get some more voices. We're going to work on a special project of sorts. Uh, So 607 Four 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 two seven six seven. If you live outside of the United States, Gross. feel free to record a little memo on your voice memo and email it to info at reformbrotherhood.com. And we will uh, consider those with equal weight as the traditional voicemail. Um, but we would love to get some more voices to uh, contribute to this celebration of 200 episodes <laughs> of the Reform Brotherhood. Sorry, can I, in celebration of us. And yes. how good God is to us. I'm going to just... post a photo of Jesse's beard and I would like <laughs> you to call in and talk about how glorious it is. That's the assignment. Listen, that's very kind. I was thinking more of just how it never ceases to amaze me. How we just cannot help but be ourselves and ourselves are super nerdy. I love that what you said <laughs> there was 
<laughs> if you send in a voice memo, we will count that as equal weight <laughs> with a voicemail that you said. Like we can't just send, say like, yeah, if you want to record your voice and send it as an email, that's like totally cool. We've yeah. got to say it like in a more formal way. This is yeah. us. Yeah, there's what a the- very co- a complex algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're actually running everything that anybody says or sends to us through a, a sophisticated ranking system. But just so you know, equal weight <laughs> with respect to whether you record it and send it to us for your email or whether you just record the voicemail. Yeah, none, none of that's true. Jesse just picks voicemails <laughs> out of the box. <laughs> out of the box? Yeah. yeah. We have a voicemail box and I, we just yes. dump them in. And I just go in, you know, kind of yeah. willy nilly. Sometimes I just throw a dart in there, it's whatever it, it tags. You throw the want. dart into the box? <laughs> into the box. That's a, just throw a dart in a box. <laughs> it's nice. more fun that way. Some yeah. people throw it, you know, put everything up on the wall and throw it no. there. Listen, there's a giant box. I, it's just more fun for me to try to see whether I can hit the box or hit the carpet. This is way more fun for me. This is also not true. <laughs> <laughs> so in the meantime, before we get to the Grand 200, we're in 199, and this is as good a place as any to talk about some affirmations and denial. So what do you got this week? So my affirmation is really straightforward. It's really simple. I'm affirming an oldie but a goodie. I'm going to hold this up for Jesse to see. None of you guys can see it, though. Ooh, it's nice. On the Trinity by St. Augustine. Like It's, it's, it's a classic. Classic. It's phenomenal. Um, I've read it before, but I'm working my way through it again. And it's it's one of those books, uh, one of those theological books that is kind of eternally contemporary, to, mm. to steal a phrase that Jesse loves. Well said. Is, um, <laughs> I didn't know I said that so much. <laughs> all the time. There's a passage, pretty much any time we're talking about the Bible, you talk about how it's an eternal contemporary. Uh, so and then good. you tell us to use coconut oil on our popcorn. a learning um, experience for me. There's a section in there that like literally reads like it was written to address the errors of Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware. Like, like it's basically like, oh, and there are some people that are going to say that this passage that's clearly talking about Jesus and his humanity is actually about his divinity. <laughs> like, it, like <laughs> right it's, he addresses every major issue that we encounter in our kind of daily uh, endeavors to promote and defend the doctrine of the Trinity. He, he took care of, you know, 1500 years ago. So it's a classic. It's easy to read. You can get it for free just about uh, anywhere you can get a copy of the um, post nice uh, post nice fathers. Um, it's just really good. It's, it's relatively easy. I mean, it's technical theology, but you got to remember Augustine was writing for his parishioners to read. It's really funny. Something that I didn't, notice because I'd never read the preface. I always just jump into the thing. He writes his own preface. And what happened, this is a little quirk of history I never knew. He started writing it. He it's like it's like 15 books is the the whole thing. So 15 volumes. He started writing it. He got through like the first three or four volumes or four three or four books and someone stole it from him and published it without his permission. So he had to then finish it so he could publish his own copy to basically say like, yeah, yeah, they, they didn't have my permission to publish it, but like, I probably should get it out there since part of it's been published. (laughs) So So like, it's a totally different world back then in terms of like publishing, like the same kind of thing happened with Luther where like he put up this 95 theses. He really intended it to be like about academic debate within the church. And someone like took it and printed it and distributed all over Germany. And then we have the reformation. So it's a great book. You can check it out. Um, The, the translation you can get in the Nicene post Nicene fathers um, versions, not the best, but it's free. Otherwise, the version that I'm reading is uh, it's by New City Press. 
Um, it's kind of the standard. If you were to just to look it up on Amazon, it's probably what you're going to run into. So it's phenomenal. Read it. You will be uh, blessed by it. And one of the coolest things is you see how deeply biblical people like Augustine, their, their reasoning is so deeply biblical. There's one section where it's literally like he's making that contrast between Christ acting according to divinity and Christ acting according to humanity, which is so important for right. Chalcedonian theology. He he literally just strings together Bible passages, Bible verses to show the different contrasts in scripture. So deeply rooted in the scriptures, extremely uh, well-written, easy to read, and uh, it's a classic. So pick it up, check it out, On the Trinity by St. Augustine. That is so solid. And keeping in that theme, I can only imagine this is because we're finishing out Dr. Beakey's book, Reformed Preaching, and so now we're just throwing everybody with out to everybody new reading material, and I'm going to do the same. So I'm affirming with not one, but two, because oh, there man. are no rules. Two books. And here's so here's an experience I had. I went onto my Goodreads, and I was looking at what I've read this year, and I don't know if this ever happened to you. All of a sudden, I was like, sweet mercy, there's a theme here that I never realized. I've read like this year, like five books on prayer. And I didn't even realize I had chosen all these books this year. So obviously I'm hungering for kind of the sense of like trying to deeply appreciate prayer and to be more efficacious yeah. with my praying. So two books, one is you already mentioned him, a simple way to pray by Martin Luther. What I love about this is it's a slender volume I just love that so many of the reformers, like, so here's what's crazy about this. This book, A Simple Way to Pray, is actually just more or less a letter that Martin Luther wrote to his barber who asked him one time when he was cutting his hair, like, hey, how do you pray? I love that (laughs) men and women of the faith, especially men who are serving in the role as pastor, preacher, instructor, would take time to respond to these needs in the most practical of ways. And so I've really loved this book. This is so good. If you're just looking for a little bit of refreshment in your prayer life, how to actually engage in prayer, a simple way to pray is so good. The second one is prayer, how praying together shapes the church. And this is by, and I'm going to butcher this name straight up. Oh man, it's, chop it up. Yeah. Do you know this book? Mm-mm. It's John Anwu Chekwa. And <laughs> the, the, strange, the amazing thing about this book is Prayer, How Praying Together Shapes the Church. Is it's, a, it's a book, a practical book about prayer that involves instruction on how to get your church to pray more effectively and what prayer should mean in the church, in your Lord's Day, and then throughout the week. I don't think I've come across a better book that, again, is so small that specifically provides instruction on how to shape prayer in the church, including everything from one of the things that he spent some time talking about is, hey, churches, pastors, if you say that the prayer meeting is important, how much of your budget goes toward that prayer meeting? How much of it goes toward providing childcare and making sure that's like a centered part of your activity, both in the way that you spend your money and your time? So these two together have been wonderful because a simple way to pray by Luther is a little bit more focused on the personal prayer life, the personal prayer closet, and then prayer how, how praying together shapes the church is one that brings us all into the fall together and as a body understanding our prayer work. So these two together have been like two pedals on a, on a prayer bike that I've really wow. been enjoying. Nice. You know, I was going to look up this guy's name uh, and then look up his background. And what I found is that his, this book you're referencing is actually available for free on Crossway's website. Really? So Yeah. So uh, it's available digitally on Crossway's website. Prayer by John Anwu Chekwa. Uh, yeah, so go get it. I didn't intend to have that 
much value to add. I was going to try to make a joke about his name. <laughs> but uh, yeah, go get it. It's on Crossway's website for free. It's so good. All right, let's get a little bit negative. What are you denying? So I'm denying, and this is going to play into an episode that we're probably going to do for episode 201, I think. I'm denying divisive heretics. And so here, here's what I'm going to say. It's always the one who's departing from the Orthodox tradition who's being divisive. So a lot of times what you see is you see someone will call out some sort of heretical document or person or doctrine, and the person who's calling attention to the fact that A, B, or C is heretical is called divisive, or they're, they're being uncharitable, or they're being unreasonable. But it's always the person who's departing from the faith once delivered to the saints who is being divisive. And so just, I I referenced, you know, Wayne Grudem and uh, Bruce Ware in the affirmation. It's actually Wayne Grudem who's being divisive by proposing an unorthodox Trinitarian theology. It's actually William Lane Craig who's being divisive by advocating for heretical Christology, right? So I'm, I'm denying divisive heretics but the punchline is that all heretics are necessarily divisive. And that's yes. actually built into the word, right? The word heretic is where we see Paul talks about factions in the church. He uses the word heresies. So just remember that because one of the things you're going to find, uh, and I don't want to call any specific situation out, but I, I mentioned last week that we're in this world right now where some of the former kind of um, the lines of who was allied with who are they're starting to like blur. There are people that we used to be able to trust as real like trusted allies in the fight that we find ourselves at odds with on certain things. And it's important to remember that in any given interaction, either someone's right and someone's wrong or both right. people are wrong, right? It can't be the case in most situations that both people are right about a, a disagreement when they're contradictory. It's always the person who's wrong who's being divisive. Right. So it's it's either it's it's either the case that both people are being divisive because they're both wrong or it's the case that one person is defending orthodoxy and one person is departing from orthodoxy. Maybe not heretically so, but is departing from the orthodox position. Um, that person is being divisive. That doesn't mean that someone can't be divisive. It can't act in a divisive way, even if they're advocating for truth. But it's important to remember that the the truth is what brings us together. It's what binds us together, right? We, um, you know, Austin um, was talking about the apostolic uh, succession on some of his shows on the, the recently with. Um, Steady Anchor podcast, the latest Bobcast was Bob Inc. on the church, and they were talking about the Catholic Church apostolic succession is founded on the scriptures. It's founded on fidelity to the apostolic testimony in the scriptures. The unity that we have with other Christians is first and foremost spiritual in terms of its its spiritual bond between Christians that were united in the Holy Spirit. But secondarily, and out, flowing out of that, is it's based on fidelity to truth as as promoted and described in the scriptures. So it's, it's the person who departs from that that's being divisive. So that's what I'm denying, is this propensity, when there is a disagreement, to blame the person who's defending orthodoxy for being the divisive one. It's actually the one who's departing from orthodoxy that's the divisive one. I think that's actually a really helpful distinction because most people maybe have not thought before where the onus lies when it comes to these types of conversations, Mm -hmm. even just from a historical perspective, right? Which is is at least where you're saying as like a starting point is take a look at what is the historical 
orthodox perspective, in some way you can provide a little bit of labeling just based on the precedent. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's really solid. Actually, that's a, that's a unique denial right there. There you go. Breaking out of the mold. I don't know if that fits into any of our normal (laughs) categories. Probably not. And neither does mine because over the past 199 times that we've talked, at least where we've recorded it, we have found many, many ways, plethora of ways to basically deny against total depravity and all of its wonderful, and I use that in quotations, nuances. And I have yet another one to add, and that is I'm denying against the way in which the mind seems self-reinforcing. And I think this to be a fact of total depravity with respect to the fact of the way sin influences If we think about a negative behavior, then we're likely, of course, to embody or undertake that negative behavior. And here's my example from this past week that affirms, not affirms, I guess, but supports (laughs) my denial. Little category confusion there. It was total category confusion. (laughs) So not, not long ago, I happened to injure my foot. And so I've been doing a little bit of physical therapy, which has been a a totally interesting and out-of-body experience in more ways than one. But this particular week... They usually have me, when I come to the physical therapy office, they have me get on the elliptical machine, do like a little warm up at first. And I kind of felt like, listen, I want to use the treadmill. Like, I don't want to just warm up. Like, cause some, here's the thing. Sometimes I come and there's like an older lady, like just crushing the elliptical. <laughs> so I, I kind of feel like, come on, man. Like, let me at least get on the treadmill. Like that looks more respectable. Like that looks a little more legitimate. So they allowed me to warm up on the treadmill. And almost as soon as I got on the treadmill and started doing a little bit of running, it was supposed to be like six minutes of running, almost immediately what came into my mind that I hadn't thought about to that point is I haven't been in a treadmill in like a decade. And if you're, if you go to the gym regularly, if you see people running on a treadmill, would you please encourage those people? Because if they're doing it and they're doing it well, that's actually a skill. It's very difficult, at least for me to run on a treadmill. So <laughs> at some point in the course of running, it turned from, Hey, this is good warm up to just don't mess up. Do <laughs> please do not fall off the treadmill. And so I got to the very end of the six minutes and the physical therapist said, all right, wind it down. I hit the stop button. Oh man. And then That's bad ev- news. Yeah. Everything just fell apart. So obviously I knew this, the treadmill was going to slow down incrementally. It started to slow down. And then what happened is more or less in my explanation, I, I had this experience where I thought I was near the end of the treadmill, but I wasn't. I had three seconds of perpetual falling and perpetual, <laughs> <laughs> perpetual grabbing my balance. And then I straight off, just straight up fell off the side, like on my back, on the ground. I'm in this open room. It gets immediately silent. The guy runs over to me is like, are you okay? He gives me a hand to lift me up. And the only thing that was really broken was all of my pride. So I literally yeah. like bit, I bit it hard and fell off a treadmill at the very end of a run. And it was like, honestly, I think if somebody had recorded this, this is the kind of thing that would absolutely go vile because I know it looked super ridiculous. <laughs> I made a lot of like sounds that would be akin to a British schoolgirl, And then I was just on my back. And so I, but I'm saying like, I think sin in our minds, like the fact that I was thinking, don't fall off, don't mess this up, don't get the yips, like whatever you want to describe it, is exactly the thing that was perpetuated because of this disconnect of sin in our hardware and our software. You went way more spiritual than I was going to go. So what I thought was going to happen, 
<laughs> is uh, the treadmill that I run on at work, which our 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 little like employee gym has been closed down for COVID since March. But the treadmill at work, when you push stop, the belt halts to a stop. <laughs> So if you push stop and you're still running, you're gonna run straight forward into the like the bar in front of you. That's, so that's crazy. what I thought was gonna that's happen. That's crazy. Who's making the rules on these things? Like there should be standard protocols. There are no rules. It, it, it like stops. It like <laughs> makes a noise. It sounds like someone hit the brakes on a car really hard. It like screeches to a stop. I don't know uh, why that is. It's like it it like seems to defy the laws of physics how fast that thing stops spinning. But I, I would pay money to see you fall off that treadmill. Like listen, that. I skinned up my elbow. Like it was, it was bad. It was not, I know some people can like gracefully dismount, even if they have like kind of lost their balance. It was not that like, I feel enough that like all of the physical therapists ran to me as if like the, are you more injured now than when you came in? Like there was genuine concern because I bit it so hard. And what this made me think about is at my parents' house where you're familiar with this past winter, I went outside and, uh, and the reason, so my, if my mother hears this story, she's going to absolutely call me. So she had said to me, be careful when you go out the back because it's super icy. And I, you know, of course I'm always <laughs> careful, but I was also a little bit like, yeah, I'm a, like, I'm a grown man. I can handle myself. So I went out to take out the trash where it was super icy. This was in winter, but there was like a, just a thin layer of water across the snow and this, I can't even describe this to you. It happened so fast. All I knew is one minute I was standing. The next minute I was on my back and I had the wind knocked out of me. Like there was no segue. It was literally, <laughs> I'm standing, I'm on the ground and all of my back is soaking wet. So it was a bit like that is I know that I was falling, but I can't tell you how quickly it happened. It just all unraveled so fast and I was so embarrassed. So I just kept trying to bring that up like, yeah, I'm that, that dude. And what's funny is, you know, they were so kind at this place where I go and they were like, listen, this happens to everybody. And I was like, that's exactly what you say when it actually hasn't happened to you. And you're just trying to yeah. make me feel better. So I was like, did it? I wouldn't let them go. I was like, has this ever happened to you? Has it? Has it? Tell me, did you actually <laughs> fall off? And then they were like, actually, no, I've, I've never actually fallen off a treadmill. And I was like, all that's right, funny. just stretch up my foot. Will you? Yeah. So, uh, as a way to make, just to pour some more salt in the wound of your pride. <laughs> Why? There's an amazing music video by a band called OK Go, where they do this whole choreographed dance on a set of treadmills. Oh, I've seen that. I, it's I'm crazy. like you. Like I can barely, barely walk and run on a treadmill without falling on my face. They do this amazing choreographed dance. They have some of the best music videos in the world. But yeah, check it out. It's pretty phenomenal. That's It'll what make I'm you saying. feel even worse about yourself. If we can turn this around into a little bit of like slight affirmation. When you're at the gym next or you have a loved one or a friend that just rocks a treadmill, will you just say like, good on you? You're, you're yeah. crushing that. You're making it look good. It's just not that easy, at least not for me. So this week, I hope my only goal, like I've already focused on it, is not to fall off. But at this point, because I'm thinking don't fall off, I'm pretty sure there's a good chance that it's going to be ugly. Yeah. I was running on the treadmill one time and I was really proud of myself because I was working on this like couch to 5K program that I didn't complete, but I was, I was pretty proud of it. I was like, I was at that point where like, you're basically running as much as you're walking. 
and I looked next to me, and there was this person. I don't say this to be mean. This person had to have been 350 pounds. Like, legitimately a big fat person was just crushing it on the treadmill. And the entire time that I was doing this run-walk thing, they were running at probably like a 7 on the treadmill. Like, they probably were doing like an 8-minute mile right. the entire time I was running on the treadmill. Not that an 8-minute mile is all that impressive, but when you're, it's you're impressive. probably pushing 350 that's pounds impressive. and you do it for like 20 minutes, it was pretty pretty amazing listen i think that's impressive if anybody wants to go out right now just stop the podcast go try to run eight minute a mile like that's no <laughs> joke i mean that that's a legitimate thing i think that generally like exercise running all this is like humbling like the exercises yeah. that i'm doing for my foot are so lame like i'm literally standing there and they'll be like you just need to lift your arch a little bit like that's what you need to do so i'm like like lifting my arch meanwhile there's like a dude like 20 feet from me that's like you know, doing like the bench press and is like yeah. actually sweating over stuff. And here I am just like trying to lift my arch up. So uh, it's my, one of my favorite stories ever is uh, in terms of like running was in our area. They have this, this very like well-known event. It's, it's a mile event. And so it's just, you just run a mile and you try to get the best mile time. And I had a colleague who I would say was probably like in his mid forties. And so he decided to do this. He was actually doing it on behalf of the organization that I work for. And so he started out running and he's not a runner and he gets halfway through and he says, you know, I'm going to turn it on a little bit. And so he starts to pick up the pace and all along this route, there are people. And all of a sudden the people start like cheering like crazy. And he's like, this is fantastic. Like people can tell, like, I'm really turning on the heat here. I'm really getting <laughs> after it. And right as like he reaches the peak of like this, a crescendo of cheering, this like seven year old just like smokes him on the way <laughs> by. <laughs> he realizes everybody's just cheering that the seven year old is about to take overtake this old dude. That's so that, that's like all of my life. That's like my spiritual life. That's like everything for me is yeah. like that exact experience. Yeah. There's no good transition point for us here, is there, Jesse? I don't know. I feel like, no, there's not. I was going to try to make it work. Let but. me see what I can do. So this book that we're doing, <laughs> we're coming up on the last leg of Reform Preaching by Joel Beakey. And, well you know, done. this has been a journey. Uh, Jesse and I were commenting before we started recording that we didn't think this through all that well because we didn't realize we were going to be doing this book series for two years. Uh, <laughs> but we're in the last chapter, which is pretty exciting. So yes, we are. I have absolutely loved this book. It's been phenomenal. Uh, I would suggest reading it faster than we have. Um, Cause if I'm being really honest, I've lost a little bit of momentum. And so it's been, it's been fun to get finished with it, but I'm excited to, to get done and to, to move on to something else and, and do a next series. So we're going to uh, do a little bit of time. We're just going to do sort of grab bag uh, episodes to sort of cleanse all of our palettes. We've gotten a lot of really great suggestions about the next uh, book series to do, and we haven't settled on exactly what we want to do yet. So please send in um, your emails, your Facebook right. messages about what you think would be a good series to do. There's not really anything that's off the table. Um, you know, any any Christian book or even a non-Christian book, if you have a book that you'd like us to maybe look at and sort of deep dive and critique, um, we're trying to do something maybe a little shorter than 700 pages. Um, 
we don't want to do another two year series, but uh, send in your your suggestions, your ideas. We would love to hear them. And then uh, we're looking forward to getting started with a new series probably sometime in the fall. Um, but yeah, we're almost done. I mean, this is the last chapter, Jesse. It's like the end of an era. This is it. It's like saying goodbye to an old friend. So we're in chapter 24 of Reform Preaching, which is entitled Preaching for Holiness. And we should say at the just right off the top here that Dr. Joel Beakey talks about so much, of course, in this chapter that we won't be able to get to, but he speaks yeah. about... For, so for me, this is how I, I would encapsulate the chapter. It's preaching for holiness if that topic were a seven-layer dip, because he talks yeah. about all these things that we really can't spend as much time as we ought to on. He talks about preaching as justification for the grounds of holiness. He talks about union with Christ as a vital root for holiness. The spirit is the power for holiness. Yeah. Spiritual warfare is a way of holiness. Love and affliction. So there's a lot that's in this. And that's why I say it's, it's like a dip. And of course you want to get everything on the chip if you can, and we're not going to be able to do that. So definitely go back and read this chapter. But the one thing that I want to at least start off the conversation with is he starts the chapter by talking about preach justification as the ground for holiness. Yeah. And one of the things that I really love that I, th- I feel like maybe you and I have talked around a little bit, but Beaky gives us kind of a lightning rod and excuse to talk about this a little bit more is he talks about the duplex gratia from yeah. John Calvin, this sense of double grace, where one of the chief benefits of, I would say, like the recent debates regarding sanctification is a renewed emphasis on the believer's union with Christ through faith. If we realize how often the Apostle Paul situates our salvation in Christ, we then really should also realize that Christ is truly the fountain of every spiritual blessing for the Christian. And this idea of duplex gratia, I think, is, it's of course unique to the Reformed faith with respect to the fact that Calvin articulated it, but a lot of different streams of theological thought basically smuggle this in without identifying it. I'm glad that Beaky brings it up here. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually reading, um, I'm into the second volume of Witsius' Covenant Between God and Man, and um, he says in his section on sanctification, he says, there's still a further difference between sanctification and justification. So he's been going through kind of a list of differences, but he says, justification is a judiciary act terminating in a relative change of state, namely a freedom from punishment and a right to life. Sanctification is a real work, which is performed by a supernatural influence, which terminates in a change of state as to the quality of both habits and action. Wow. So I I, re, I say that so good. to first and foremost sort of head off any confusion that might come about as we talk about this is Jesse and I are totally on the same page here. Justification and sanctification are distinct things. Right. Justification is a work that God does that is almost entirely outside of us. Right. It's it's a it's a declarative state of affairs where God changes our status at a point in time that then continues on into eternity. You don't ever go back. Sanctification is a work that God does that progresses over time. But at the end of the day, it's still a work that God does. And although those two things are separate, they always come together. They're always there. It's a bundled deal. Right. So so you think about it like, you you know, you go to Comcast, you go to order your your Internet package and they say, well, we'll give you a deal if we if you take TV 
v2 okay great so you pay one price there's one thing that you get you pay one price you get one product but the product is still distinct right my tv service is not my internet service they're they're together but they're not the same thing and sanctification and justification functions very very much like that is my justification is not my sanctification and my sanctification is not my justification but i'm never going to have justification without sanctification also accompanying it and that's really important for us to remember because as much as we've emphasized that sanctification is a monergistic enterprise that God does to us, it's something God does to us. It's not something we do to ourselves or something that we help God do to us. It's something that God does to us, right? The, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of holiness primarily because he sanctifies us. That's important. But to ever separate those two things as though you could have one without the other, that lends itself and leads almost invariably to a form of antinomianism. And that's where we get people like Tulian Tavidian and sort of his hyper grace movement that we really run into major problems. So I was really thankful that he kind of called this out, that if you're going to preach holiness, and this is the first place that he talks about it. It's it's literally the second page of the chapter. He calls this out that if you're going to preach holiness, you have to start with justification because a person who's not made legally right with God can never be made concretely actually right with God. The legal status change has to come logically first in order for the actual change in our life to then proceed from it. And it's that logical order that I think is so helpful, which is why I appreciate that this is where the chapter starts because this dual grace, the call out was so great, right? Because it's one thing to kind of like presume that your readers understand this, but it's another thing to say, like, let me really kind of articulate this and diagram it out for you so that we make sure we're all on the same page. The dual graces of justification and sanctification, he's basically making the argument, these flow mutually from the union of Christ. And what follows then is that there's, there are two tra- trajectories here defined for the new covenant, like in Hebrews eight, one transformative and the other forensic. This is right. why, of course, the author says, I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. So he quotes Calvin at length here in, in his own words by saying like, by partaking of him, we principally receive a double grace, duplex gratia, namely the being reconciled to God through God, through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven instead of a judge of gracious father. And yeah. secondly, that the sanctified of Christ's spirit, we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. And so what I think is so helpful for us here is that the call to progressive sanctification must also come paired with a reminder of the perfect status as sinners justified wholly and freely by God's grace. That idea, which he pushes forward, which he promulgates is like, this is what good preaching and holiness means. I actually think that's missing in a lot of preaching. It's this idea, of course, that like, for, like you said, sanctification is monergistic. There is a responsibility in the mystery of God that he gives to us by way of working alongside, so to speak, I hate to use that language, but you know what I mean? Like in terms of working under the power and submitting to the Holy Spirit in this way. And yet it has to start with the fact that the only way you can get even get that far 
is if somehow justification is a means and a power unto obedience that transcends volatile commitments of the will. Because I think so many people, if I speak for myself, maybe others have experienced this too, is you have a sense or there's some kind of been like resurgence in your life or, well, now I'm really going to get after this particular sin yeah. or now I'm really going to undertake this particular activity. Yeah. And what he's pushing against is this is beyond that. It transcends that. It's actually deeper than that and it's far outside that. It's that even flawed works may please our Heavenly Father in heaven, but... It is this idea that in justification, there is such a change in the inner will and the inner man that it's not just about trying harder per se, but trying harder under the power and the support of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was at a conference one time with Rick Phillips, um, who is Presbyterian pastor. I think he's in Charlotte. I could be wrong about that. But he was talking about the Ordo Salutis. And that's kind of what we're getting at. We did an episode on the Ordo Salutis. Man, it must have been almost 100 episodes ago, if not more. And what he made the point that I thought was really insightful is the order of salvation is a way to trace the presence of new life temporally through the life of a believer. Mm, And so we often draw this distinction between regeneration as sort of the infusion of new life and sanctification as like sort of like what the spirit does in terms of us becoming more and more like Jesus. But in reality, if you trace this regeneration is the point in time where new life is infused into us and that new life progresses and it does what new life does, right? We've, we said it before, like flowers bloom because that's what living flowers do. Living trees produce fruit because that's what living trees do. And for the Christian, That's why Jesus says that a good tree produces good fruit, because once that principle of new life is infused in us in in regeneration, that flows out necessarily into sanctification. But the first thing that happens in that regeneration is God creates faith in us. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to, to make that faith efficacious for our salvation. And that now then is justification. That resting and receiving of Christ for our justification is that next step after regeneration. And so in the logical order of things, we're regenerated, we're given faith. And then at the same time, right, if you were to fork it off instead, I'm doing all sorts of hand symbols for Jesse, but you can't see it. (laughs) But if you picture a diagram where there's a point and then two lines come out of it, justification and sanctification actually start at the same point. Same they, they're, they're at the same time, but that justification still happens logically prior to sanctification. And so it, it's kind of like um, if you had somebody who was going to court, right? Let's say here, here's a good example. When I was in seminary, I was driving back. I, I had come up to visit um, your sister here in New Hampshire. It was a, it was a weekend. It was over the summer. And going back down to the seminary where I was living, I got, I got caught speeding on the freeway. And the ticket was way too big for me to be able to pay. So I went to the court. I asked them for leniency. And what they said is, sure, we're going to go ahead and give you leniency. But in response, we need you to do some community service. And so I wasn't working off my debt because they never actually made me report back how much community service I did. I never had to submit a document that said I had completed the community service, which is maybe a little different than some courts would do it, but I never did. And so if I had just gone to the court and said, well, but guess what? I did all this community service. So therefore, uh, I'm now a better person. You should excuse my speeding. They would have laughed at me. They probably would have said, no, no, that's not going to work. But because they had said, 
we're going to show you leniency. We're not going to hold this crime against you. In fact, we're going to relieve the debt. We're going to release that debt. We're going to expunge it from your record. And in response, we need you to do X hours of community service. That's what we're talking about. So if we were to say sanctification comes before justification, we preach sanctification, not with justification as the grounds and root and the soil that that sanctification grows in, we would be preaching a legalism where we become righteous right. by means of our uh, by means of our good work. Whereas it is in the scriptures and as it is in, in the teachings of the apostles, that good work is actually established as righteous because we're righteous people doing that good work. So it's really important. I'm glad right. that he made this because this is literally the head of the chapter. This is where it all goes. If you're going to preach holiness, yes. it has to flow out of the justification of the saints. Because if you don't, then you fall into this legalism where whether you mean to or not, if, if justification is not in the foreground of all of your preaching about sanctification, then you end up with this legalism. And that's just exactly the, the biblical pattern. Right? Paul always starts with the indicatives. He always starts with the doctrine which shows right. that we're justified by by faith alone in Christ alone before he ever gets into the, the, the talk about what to do as a result of it. And my suspicion is that most, even, I'll just say evangelicals, even though that can be a pejorative term, have enough theological muscle memory to understand that this is in fact the case. It's just wonderful to see it articulated in this way. And sometimes yeah. what's odd is that there is pushback on this exact expression or this explanation. And yet I think the Bible is abundantly clear as basically you've been expressing is this idea when Paul says like, we haven't been saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. That right. distinction, which the Bible makes, which Paul literally writes out for us as if to like uh, take away any sense of confusion about what exactly he's getting after there makes it very clear that this idea that therefore in Christ there is now therefore no condemnation that that's a real legal status it's a right. real state of affairs to be simultaneously sinner and sanctified is a real position in life right and so because of that all of that comes out of that then should be an obedience to god that's not just about gratitude it's not just like trying to earn back sometimes we express gratitude or contrition by way of how bad we feel by some relative comparison we're yeah. saying here is no it's like this is a thankfulness that's rooted in identity and so because you are it's it's more about identity than it is about something that's been accomplished for you it's not transactional so because you've been made this way because you are changed and transformed now of course you behave in an entirely different way. And the way that you behave becomes so unnatural and innate that you're never thinking, well, I'm behaving this way because I'm trying to earn something back or to show right. that I'm even thankful. But this is just who I am now because I am a different person. Yeah. And I think that that's the key, right? This is just who I am now. That's, yes. that's the most important part is, you know, when Paul is confronted, he, he confronts himself with this hypothetical um, objection of like, well, sh should we sin now that grace abounds, right. right? This objection that he anticipates is coming. He's probably heard it before uh, and he's anticipating it. And his answer is not some uh, defense of the fact, you know, we have this tendency to try to explain why it is that justification by grace alone does not result in antinomianism. And that's valuable, right? There's, there's a place for that. But Paul's answer is not some elaborate explanation that actually ties justification into, uh, that ties good works into justification. Yes, that's, exactly. that's our tendency sometimes in the Christian exactly. church is to somehow try through some back door to connect justification to um, good works in a causative sense. 
That's the tendency. But what Paul does is instead of doing that, he, he says, well, no, that's just nonsense. That would be like saying, uh, well, as a circle, should we should we corner so that corners no more? Like there, it, he, it's a logical impossibility for Paul that a person who has been infused with this principle of new life and regeneration, that then the very first act of that new life is to trust in Christ for salvation. It's impossible that that person would then live in sin. Right. That that person would then sin that grace may abound. Is that it's this idea that somehow the living, the person who's been made alive in Christ could be dead again. That that's what it really boils down to. Is once we've been made alive in Christ, or or to use a different biblical phrase, once we've been freed, we're free indeed. Right? When the Son right. has set you free, you are free indeed. And it, you know, you could liken it to somebody who has been released from a debt and then still tries to send a check into the person who right. they thought they owed money to. That person goes, well, you don't owe me any more money. Why are you sending me a check? It's this weird logical inconsistency. But instead, what Paul is saying is this person who's been made alive in Christ is truly alive in Christ. It's not some some illusion that they're alive in Christ. It's not some made-up fairy tale that they're alive in Christ. They really are alive in Christ. And since they're alive in Christ, there are certain things that living people do that dead people don't. And one right. of those things that living people do is they grow and progress in their sanctification. And so this, this was the perfect way to start this chapter. And I think the perfect way to end this book, right? Yes. Because this whole chapter, you know, we've talked about one of the things that's been a repeated theme in this book is that application is not a dirty word, right? A lot of us coming from evangelical backgrounds where the preaching has been maybe not so great and it's been a little bit heavy on the law and not so heavy on the gospel is we have this like allergy to application. But what, what um, Dr. Beakey is saying here is that the true application of the scripture is that those who are made alive in Christ will necessarily progress through sanctification to glorification. So this chapter really ends the book by saying, here's the application of the whole thing, the whole Bible. The application is live out your calling, live in a way worthy of the calling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. That's the application of the Bible. And so he's just giving us ways to talk about that, that helps us not to ground that in legalism, but to ground that in God's grace. And the shift that we're talking about here is more than like paradigmatic. It's not this idea of just simply thinking differently. It, it is this concept that from at a fundamental level, you have been so transformed and changed that you are no longer the person that you were before. And so, of course, your yeah. paradigm will be different. But if you just focus merely on the paradigm, that's actually like too surface level. It's, it's not at the root of what God does. And this should push us back into, again, the other admonishment of Paul to say, like, test what, to see whether or not you're in the faith. This is a challenging thing. It's not just about being self-aware. It's about trying to understand, well, if the way in which I behave or believe or think is not fundamentally different than the way in which most those who believe around me are um, in terms of like whether or not they're believers, then that should be the type of thing that should push us into some kind of self-examination. Yeah. And I want to I pair this with, uh, if we only get this far, this is good enough because this idea of justification is, is really, I, I agree with you, like really the foundation of the house. And we can talk about, you know, you can put siding on it and you can put shutters on it and all that stuff is look, looks good. But of course, if the foundation is weak, then really nothing else matters. Right. But he pairs this with this idea of like preaching union with Christ, which is something we've talked about at length as well. And let me just give this quote from Joel Beakey. He says, reasons and arguments that demonstrate our obligation to obey cannot give us the inward life to fulfill our obligations. 
And that's really what we're after here, I think, is this purity, this righteousness that comes in the inward life. Because if the inward life is righteous, then every manifestation of life will be necessarily an expression of that righteousness. And if anybody else is like me, that's what I'm after, is sometimes the world tries to make us put forth all this effort to, on the outside, try to push inward so that if I do something that looks good, if I focus on just doing really good deeds, then somehow that says something about who I am on the inside. If anybody's ever tried to purify themselves by just doing good things or to give off the impression that they are a good person, they know at the end of that day, they actually feel worse off and more empty than when they began because what they realize is that the outward action does not actually match the inward influence. Right. And what Christ is about, and the, in fact, the only thing, the only way that we can have that transformation on the inside comes from Jesus Christ himself. So practical holiness can only come from this exercising of faith in Christ. Yeah. This is, I think, an unpopular lesson Honestly, I think it's just so much easier to say, give me certain steps, give me things to think about, tell me how I should read the scriptures, give me, you know, five steps onto how to be a more exceptional prayer warrior. And what God is about, again, is that inward transformation. And all I'm saying, I guess, is we should, in reading this, not presume that we have it all correct, that we haven't strayed too far from Christ and his transformation of, even if he has saved us, this is a call to come back to that, to come back to the simple, straightforward and the fundamental things. Yeah. And, you know, I think this ties in to a later point he makes in the chapter that I want to make sure we touch on because some of the content of our show has, has touched on this. I want to make sure we address it is he talks about preaching as uh, preaching heaven as the aspiration of holiness. And the reason I want to touch on this is because this is central uh, this this way of talking is central to the discussion and the debate between R. Scott Clark and kind of John Piper slash Mark Jones, right? So he says on page um, 436, he says, holiness is the only way to heaven. Without it, no one will see the Lord, right? So so this language is classic Puritan language. And that's that's the point that Mark Jones was making the entire time. My thesis is actually that John Piper is saying something different. But it's important for us to understand what is meant here. And the reason that we can say this is because he's already established that the justification of the saints is a permanent status that is obtained through faith alone in Christ alone, right? Mm -hmm. Our works have zero, zero to do with our justification, right? Right. They do not, they do not justify us before the Lord. He does not take them into account in, in, in determining whether or not we will be admitted into heaven. None of that is true. And that's where my disagreement, uh, as I've understood and studied John Piper more is John Piper seems to be saying that in the final analysis, that works play a role in the final analysis. And that word analysis is important that when God analyzes us to decide whether or not we can enter heaven, works play a role. And that's not at all what Dr. Beakey is saying here. That's not what the Puritans were saying. I don't think that's what Mark Jones is saying and certainly not what you and I are saying. Instead, think of it this way, right? Most people, when they drive to work, they they have a, a standard route they take to work, right? You, you take the same road. Maybe once in a while you take a different one to mix it up. But for the most part, you take the same streets, you take the same turns. And there's probably like a billboard that you pass every day on your way to work. Maybe it's one of those billboards that says like, if you worked here, you'd already be there. Or if you if you lived here, you'd already be home, right? That billboard is the way to work. 
right? That, that billboard is always going to be there. You're always going to pass it so much so that if all of a sudden you realize you haven't passed that billboard, you probably are on good grounds to think I'm not on the, the right path to get to work. But that is not to say that that billboard somehow is the cause of you getting to work. And that's the difference is to say that holiness is the highway to heaven is not to say that you reach heaven by means of doing good work. Right. It means that the road to heaven, the pathway to heaven is characterized by the yes. good works that you will do. So when you are truly justified, as we said earlier, if you've truly been made alive in Christ, then you're alive in Christ and you just do what people who are alive in Christ do. The point of saying that holiness is the highway to heaven is to say that if you don't see holiness in, in some form, right? Sometimes people are like, well, how much holiness? How much good works? I don't have an answer for that. I don't think there's a static answer for every single right. person. But if you don't see some sort of evidence in your life that the Holy Spirit is transforming, if you don't see some sort of evidence that that principle of new life and regeneration has been infused in you, you have to ask which path you're on. Are you on the highway to heaven, which is characterized by the billboards of good, good works, if you want to say it that way? Or are you on a different highway? Are you on a different pathway that has different signs? A more simple analogy might be when I drive down the road to work, I see signs that say U.S. Route 4 all along the way. Right, because I'm on U.S. Route Four. Those right. signs don't make it U.S. Route exactly. Four. I was going to say the same right. thing. If you went through and you took down all of those signs, it wouldn't suddenly cease to become Route Four. Yes. Those signs are markers that tell you you're on Route Four. They help you understand which road you're on, not determine which road you're on. If I put up a sign that says Route Five, it's not like suddenly Google Maps is going to get confused and think I'm on a different road. And right. that's what Dr. Beaky is trying to get at. That's what the Puritans are getting at. That's what I think Mark Jones is trying to get at. And this is where I, I do come into some disagreement. I think that John Piper is saying something different. I don't want to get into that too much more, but I figured since that this is in this chapter, we would be remiss not to address that a little bit. And you can see, though, how that's somewhat of a radical position, at yeah. least because it, it pushes against this sense that, well, I've heard many, I think, well-intentioned Christians argue, well, when you get to heaven, per John Piper's view, you're going to be able to kind of stack up all of these good things that you've done. And you'll say, well, no, I did them because I'm changed. And God will be like, all right, right on. I can see that there's a manifest change and right. here it is. But what we're saying is, no, everything precedes that. Like, in right. fact, what Christ does is so much more important and so much more solid and the fundamental, the full stop thing that it almost, let me say it this way, even if you didn't do anything else after that fact, that at that point that God saved you, it, that would still be enough. Right. Now, of course, like, like you're saying, the life that is transformed is the life that does these things. And so, therefore, we need not make either a pulmonary or otherwise like this, this separation. But just for the sake of argument, we're trying to emphasize how substantial it is that yeah. God in his justification creates this re forensic redefinition of who you are. And that's why, like, I want to also just emphasize that something that, again, people need to read the, the full chapter to get the full scope of what he's saying here, but that maybe that signpost, maybe that sign on the way is going to be a sign that says the Christian life is spiritual warfare. The fact right. that you struggle, the fact that you're aware that there's a battle even within your own soul to seek after that, which is righteous and holy, to focus your mind on those things. He goes to great lengths to say fighting and struggling against personal evil and temptation does not indicate that someone is living in defeat or second-class spirituality. These things in them of themselves may indicate that you were on that path. Yeah. But we need to be very careful 
about not making the making the mistake that by saying like, well, I've done these things or I show these things, somehow this proves or this is this is the 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 meat of me being able to show that I am saved or that I have been justified. Right. There's nothing in our works that leads to our status. A status change can only come from outside of us. Even the good works themselves, while they are promoted by the Holy Spirit, are mm-hmm. things that happen within us. And therefore, for that reason, they can't be the very things that substantiate a change in status. Right. You know, it does also bear saying too, lest lest we be un- misunderstood. There is a vindication in the last day, right? The Bible well, talks about how all people will stand before the throne of, of God, sure, and they will be um, they will be assessed based on their works. It is almost better to think of that as a vindication of God, right? Because because it says in the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism says in the last day will be openly acknowledged and acquitted. So there's this element where God sort of parades us in front of the rest of creation to sort of use that language. He parades us in front of the la- the rest of creation and it redounds to his glory that right. we have been changed. The good works that we've done yes. in Christ serve to glorify the Lord and they they prove that what he said he did in our lives, he actually did in our lives. So in that way, we're openly acknowledged before all of creation, before the angels, before the rest of Christians, before the reprobate who are observing this, before everything. We are, we are acknowledged as having been transformed. And part of that acknowledgement is, I think, for God to point at the good works that he has done in us and the good works that we have done as a result of that. Right. It also says that we'll be acquitted. That acquittal is not a result of the good works. Right. It's not, not at all a result of the good works. That acquittal is a result entirely of the fact that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus Christ was punished for our sins, so we don't have to be. Jesus Christ was not acquitted of our sins so that we could be. Right. So it's important to distinguish those. You know, I, I talk a lot about Witsius because I've been reading him. He has this beautiful section on justification where he enumerates all of that. And it's important because he, he delineates all these things. And it's really, really key for us to understand that this eschatological reality, this eschatological judgment, it's not the case that we are never going to have to hear about the places that we failed. I don't, I don't buy this whole idea that like God's going to play a movie of our life like that, that imagery. I don't really buy that. I'm not sure I can see that in the scripture, but there is this element where we are acknowledged as his sons. He points to us and say, these, this person here, Jesse Schwamm, Tony Arsenal, whoever it is, that's my son. I adopted him. I justified him. And here's the evidence. He lives like a son of the King. Right. It would be like if, um, if there was a, a point, you know, in a kingdom, right, where, where the prince is brought forward and, and someone says, prove that he's the prince. And the king says, look at the clothes he's wearing. Right. Look at the signet ring on his hand. Look at the crown on his head. Those things are evidence. They're proof that he really is my son. Look at the regal way he carries himself. Look at the way that he defended the innocent in this kingdom. Look at the way he sacrificed for our subjects. That proves that he's the prince. It doesn't make him the prince, right? Right. So that's the acknowledgement that we're talking about. The acquittal is totally different. So it's important to delineate that. And that's why I think it's so brilliant that Beaky starts this chapter by grounding everything in that justification. Because everything that happens as a result of that new principle of life is happening in the lives of those who are no longer legally culpable to wrath. Wrath is no longer an option for those who are in Christ. It's, It's off the table. There's no more condemnation in Jesus Christ, right? Everything else that happens is happening from a place of, of justified living such that to even talk about 
earning or obtaining salvation is a nonsense situation. It'd be like talking about, well, I got to do this to earn, earn my marriage. Well, no, I already have my marriage. I'm already married. I've got the ring on my finger to prove it. That's not what we're talking about. So I, I think this was a brilliant way to kind of round out this book. There's no way this was a killer ending. And I do hope that if you've even just jumped into this whole conversation for the first time, that you'll go pick up a copy of Joel Beakey's yeah. Reform Preaching, not just for preachers, as we've been saying all along. In fact, yes. maybe it's more so for those who are among, who consider themselves among lay people who are listening to preaching. This yeah. is a book for all of God's people. And there's so much, you know, the ir- irony is, I think sometimes people think of a book like this and they think, well, it's going to provide some kind of like very specific instruction to pastors. But if it's really talking about good preaching, then what it's going to talk about is good theology. And that's right. what we've gotten all along. Yeah. So just like we talked about today, there's so much in this that really spurs the heart on to love God more and to really be concerned with the kind of preaching that you're consuming. And yeah. then to go out and to live your life in a way that is practically devoted to the fidelity of the scriptures and to God himself in yeah. willful obedience that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Beaky covers that through and through in every chapter, whether he's talking about setting the ground as he was in the first third for what reform preaching is like when he gets into the examples in the middle third. And then the end here, where he's talking about the practicality of it all. This is a book that really belongs on, I think almost anybody's shelf and it's certainly worth having as a reference. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's an easy read. It's long. It's a lot of pages, but it's not difficult to work through. And you know, this is one of those books, each chapter, I don't know how long it took you, but each chapter probably took me maybe 20 minutes to read. Sure. It's not like it was long chapters. So it makes a good addition to your, like, maybe you do specific devotions on Sunday morning. It'd be great to sit and read this before you go into the Lord's Day service. You can sort of have in your mind sort of the theology of preaching as you sit under the word to kind of shape you. Um, It really is good. It makes a great gift for your pastor, for anyone in your church who's interested in preaching, which newsflash should be all of us. So I can't suggest it enough. (laughs) I think it's a phenomenal book. I'm really glad we went through this series. Um, I'm kind of sad that it's done, but... You know, maybe I'll just it's a good start, sadness, right? Maybe I'll just start reading it again tomorrow. <laughs> well, here's the thing that's interesting about this. Um, you definitely should pick up a copy, of course, to, for all those reasons. One of the things that I found as a kind of a surprising benefit of this book is it may it has made me a little bit more excited about the Lord's Day. Yeah, I think part of that is because you're kind of getting to see how the sausage is made, so to speak. So if, if you've ever been a person that has really thought much about preaching and what it takes, what's involved in it, you're definitely going to get the impression in this like, man, I'm so thankful I'm not called to be a preacher because yeah. there's he really lays on thick and hard because that is, of course, what the Bible promulgates. All of these responsibilities, the authority of preaching, how important it is. And so this is why, at the very least, I hope that when you read this, you'll get a greater appreciation for your pastor and really the responsibility that they have. I liked your idea. It would be great if every one of our listeners got a copy of this book as just a straight up gift for their pastor. I think that is such a beautiful expression, both of appreciation and I can't imagine any pastor not wanting to have more and a greater set of tools and another way to like view properly under the scriptures of what preaching means. This is that book. So like if you're looking for a way just to show your pastor and honestly, we know of course in our culture, oftentimes like October is pastor appreciation month. Every Lord's day should be pastor appreciation day. So it's, it's worthwhile, like almost outside of that regular schedule of affairs to just grab this book give it to them and say, I'm just really thankful for all that you do yeah. in the service of the Lord in our congregation. 
this is just a, a small token of my gratitude. And I hope this will be a useful resource for you. Yeah. Even better, buy it for your pastors that you know of in your life that aren't reformed. <laughs> yeah, I sure. A, I have a Lutheran pastor friend that I'm planning on purchasing a copy and sending it to. Um, who, if I'm being really honest, his preaching has not always been all that solid. There's lots of times where there are instances where his preaching has been very moralistic and very driven by um, kind of cultural exegesis, cultural sure. exegesis, where, where you you preach what you want to preach and you sprinkle the scripture on top of it so that at least right. it sounds like a Christian sermon. So it makes a great gift. You know, it, it doesn't always do to like send an email to that person and be like, yeah, your sermons are pretty weak, brother. But <laughs> it's very easy to send a book and say, hey, you know, I, I saw this book. I thought of you. Every pastor wants to learn to be a better preacher. That's that's right. non-negotiable. It's not controversial. And I would really love it if I could give you this book to encourage you in your task of bringing the word to the people. And I don't know a single pastor who would receive a book under that, under that genuine pretense and, and be offended or say, I'm not going to read this book. I just right. don't know anyone that would be like that. I, so the, I love it. Can we end this way? Because I think this is, is it's very interesting. And I was kind of thinking of this myself is, can we say it's okay to stir the pot a little bit? Like stir the pot a little bit. Like the idea of giving this to your pastor, even though they say you don't go to like a quote unquote reformed church, it's titled reform preaching, which is not yeah. exactly the same as reformed theology. Although of course, reform preaching, preaching has at its center reformed theology. But right. Dr. Beaky will do all the heavy lifting for you. He's so yep. gracious with the way that he approaches this that I really can't imagine any minister who is not devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ reading this and not agreeing with every word that he's saying because he's so kind and his approach is so strong with respect to what the scripture puts forward as like the responsibilities yeah. that I really think this is just a phenomenal resource. I understand the title might be a little bit off-putting, but that's also... A little bit awesome. So, like <laughs> again, stir the pot a little bit. It's yeah. okay. I'm going to get this actually for our pa my pastors as well, and I know that w they will say to me when I give it to them, like, "Oh, okay, I can see why you're giving this book." But I'm going to say, like, listen, this is about preaching. This is a book right. about preaching. So take it as you will. Like, just read yep. it. That's all I ask because I think that you will find nothing in this that you disagree with. Yeah. And even just the examples. How much do we love going through all like the examples of these like reformed preachers and just loving learning about how they approach the scriptures in all their different ways yeah. and the really strange idiosyncratic and wonderful nuances of their life. Like that in itself was just fun. And so I can't imagine any preacher who does this as like their actual vocational living. This is a way in which they, they really support their families. Not also enjoying even just that part. So there's something yeah. in it for everybody, but I'm really eager to get this in the hands of my pastors and then to also do a little bit of a, uh, uh, like told you so like this <laughs> <laughs> just because it's it, this is just an expression of what the Bible communicates right. about preachers. Yeah. And yeah. Dr. Beaky does that. I was going to call him Joel, but we're not on a first name basis. No, this not, is like, what, not like dad is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. People should go back and listen to that episode. Um, this is what Joel does well is like, he's so unassuming, so winsome in his argumentation, but it's he does it better than I could. So I think like, yeah. this is a way, like, even if let's say like you're that token person as sometimes I am in your congregation of like, he's the reform person. Yeah. This is like a great way to kind of bring in some kind of deeper conversation around that. Yeah. Well, Jesse, this is the end of an era. It's in more than one way. I know it seems somehow appropriate that we would be turning the corner off of reform preaching and also turning the corner out of the one hundreds on the same week. 
it's hard to believe. Like to do two hundred, it just seems I know unfathomable. That I like what you said. Like I can't believe we made it this far. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised anybody <laughs> listens to us every week. I'm surprised too. So that being as it is. Because we're ending this and we're about to hit 200, let's renew that call to action. Please leave us some voicemails. Let us know that you're out there. Yeah. We're, we're celebrating. And really, when we say we celebrate, we're meaning that we inclusive, all those who have joined us in this journey, because it's remarkable yeah. to think of how far we've come. And really, when we say this, this is not a way to somehow self-aggrandize, but it's really to celebrate what God has done. And so many have reached out to us and talked about yeah. the importance of these conversations and the conversations they're having with others and what God is doing or even if it's just to give a little extra energy and inspiration to go back into the scriptures or to look into the confessions. We are so thankful and we always have been, I think, very straightforward and clear that this is God's work. Yes. That we merely get to participate, come along for this journey. But if anything good has come out of this silly little podcast, it's because God himself yeah. has done the work. Yes, absolutely agreed. Well, Jesse... I'll Tony. see you in the 200s. <laughs> I feel like we need to make like a see you next year joke or something, but it's not quite there. It's It's been crazy. It's been a good run. I'm excited to see what happens next. And you know what? Newsflash. We have some pretty exciting stuff coming up next week. Oh, that's true. I mean, we I adhere forgot. to the regulative principle of podcasting yes. here. So you're pretty much just going to get a normal episode next week. But we do have a couple... <laughs> A couple little fun surprises for you. So make sure if for some reason you were like, I've listened to these guys for 199 (laughs) hours of my life and I'm done. I'm done. Don't don't be done. We have some cool stuff coming up. We're really excited. For just one more episode. Get us your ideas for book series or if you want us to dive into a particular um, set of the scriptures or something like that, uh, make sure you send those ideas. Most of our best episodes have come out of someone writing us an email and going, hey, could you guys talk about this? Right on. Because I've been wondering, and or I've been struggling with this, or I'm wondering about this, or I need some help with this. Those are the best episodes, and those are the ones that we want to make are the ones that actually help people in the community with whatever it is they need help with. Sometimes it's theological. Sometimes there's practical questions that we can offer non-pastoral advice on. Um, right. Please send us those. Um, you've, you've got all of the ways to get those. We don't have to repeat them right now, but check it out. Uh, check out the website, reformbrotherhood.com. There's all of the backlog uh, episodes are there. Um, there's great links to other shows on the Society of Reform Podcasters. Subscribe to the mega feed. This is just turning into like one long advertiser, <laughs> Jesse. I don't know how to stop. It I don't know how to stop. Like, it actually sounds like I realized halfway through this whole thing that it sounds like we're ending the podcast right now. Yeah, like this, this is it. This is like one of those TV shows that thinks they're getting canceled, so they wrap everything up and then they have to come back for another season. That's not no one's canceling right. us. At least I don't think no, so. You can't can you can't cancel us. Only the Lord Jesus himself, if he comes back, can cancel us. But then again, yeah, that'll be a whole different celebration. Maybe Libson could too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Maybe, on that but, note, yes. Until but, you hear us say next time, welcome to the. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.